Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. a great day for us to have a deacon ministry now as a church. We're just getting better as a church, and then Lord willing, uh, less and less people can fall through the cracks. And so, you know, first line of defense is you uh, as far as caring for people and making sure people experience and see Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for each one of you. But then as elders, we know that Hebrews chapter 13 says that we're going to have to give an account for our body. And so we want to be able to know our body and care for our body. And so we're excited about our deacons uh, being a part of that and caring for this church body. And so you've been here at at a great time. And if you see those folks in the hallway, please encourage them. I know we even had, uh, there's always stuff going on in the lives of people, right? And so the worship team that you saw in this service was not the same worship team we had in the first service because somebody had a family emergency on that team. And so we just continue to have needs that come up in our body, and we want to continue to care for those needs. And so we're going to do that. So I'm going to pray for us as a church as we open up the scriptures. You saw the video. We're starting a new series today called Encounters. We're going to be primarily in the Gospel of John, uh, seeing 11 encounters that change the world. And when somebody has an encounter with God, it changes them and then should change the way they interact with other people. And so we're going to see that in the, in the scriptures this morning as we open up John chapter 1. If you've got your Bible, John chapter 1, we'll start reading verse 29 if you're looking on an app. If you're a guest here today, uh, we're grateful for you. We will find a seat for you if you're still coming in and uh, set some up on the back or whatever we have to do. Um, but maybe you've been coming for two or three weeks and you weren't sure whether or not you trusted us enough to tell us who you were and that you're here. And uh, we're weird, but maybe we're not so weird that we're just going to be like in your living room one day. And so if you want, and you're a guest here today, uh, make yourself known by filling out the connection cards in your worship program. It was at the very bottom on the backside of the notes that you have there. And if you take that out to the orange tent, we make a donation to a ministry for every connection card that gets turned in for a first-time guest. So maybe it's your second or third time, you never turned it in. We make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International that rescues people out of human trafficking situations. So you filling out that card gives you an opportunity to have a, an impact this morning. And then also we give you a gift. And so some of you are like, I don't want a gift. I'll give two to the next guy then. All right, we'll do that. Turn the, turn the card in and uh, we'll be thankful that you're here today. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll jump into this sermon. Father, thank you uh, that we get to gather in your name today. Thank you for your people. Every person that's here is precious to you, loved by you. Some of them know you. Some of them probably don't. Everybody's at a different spot in their journey. And I'm going to speak one, one message But God, will you have thousands of conversations? Will you tap people on the shoulder? Will you speak to them by the power of your spirit? Will you transform minds? Will you take away sin? Will you reveal sin? Will you deal with stuff in our hearts? God, will you help us to see you? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we get started this morning, I just want to ask you, have you ever heard uh, this phrase before? You've got to see this. Has anyone ever said that to you before? And let me just ask this. How many of you here would say you've said those words? You've got to see this. Maybe you said it to your spouse or you said it to somebody, you know, kid does something. You've got to see this. Or you show them some viral video of some guy that's driving his car backwards down the expressway. Did you all see that one? Or the kid that's jumping and there's a gorilla on the other side of the glass and the gorilla's jumping too. It's like, I'm so thankful for that glass, like as you watch the video. And so some, we, are, we are a visual culture. I was reading this week, this are, as of 2016, we broke the barrier of $11 billion a year we spend on movies. Think about liking to watch things. And see things. And we got our viral videos. I've already mentioned that. You think about we're the, we're the culture that coined the phrase binge watching. Now, I won't ask if you've binge watched before. I'm just going to assume it's 110% of everybody who's here has binge watched before. But think about what happens in that moment. You watch a show, it comes to the end of the episode. It doesn't matter if it's two in the morning and you've got to be at work at eight o'clock, 
I gotta see what happens next. And so you start watching the next episode. Did you know, did you know, here's a little historic information for those of you who are archaic like myself, there was a time when if you were watching a show, you had to wait a whole week to watch the next episode. <laughs> it's like, I don't even remember what that show was about in a week from now. But in that moment, it's like, I got, you gotta see what's next. We're visual people. We long to see stuff. And some of you may have heard we were commissioning at the end of the, the last service a trip. I'm going on a mission trip uh, tomorrow to Madagascar, Africa. We've got some missionaries, two couples that we've sent out there, the Bakers and the Wallers. Uh, the Wallers we sent out about 10 years ago. The Bakers about two years ago. Uh, sent them out to Madagascar, Africa, this little, this little island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And God's been doing there basically what you read about in the book of Acts. Amazing stuff. They started planting churches about eight years ago. And now they've planted well over 150 churches. Not sure if they're quite at 200 yet, so I won't exaggerate the number. But yeah, for sure. I went there, I met with some of the missionaries that were on the island and, and went there right before they started sharing the gospel with people in the villages, and so I didn't get to see all that had happened, but I've been being told these stories since, that I, was, since I was there. Of Just give you one example. One of the villages that we were praying for, Kilimari people, I think it was, and, and Anbisatra was another place. Well, there was a witch doctor that was there before the missionaries got there, and before he died, told the village, there's a white man who's going to come, he's going to tell you about the one true God, believe him. So then our missionary, Grant, he's a white dude, just FYI, he shows up in this village, and this guy, you know, the people start coming to him going, the witch doctor told us you were coming. He's like, well, I don't want anything to do with the witch doctor, that is not what I'm bringing to you. So they told us you were going to tell us about the one true God, and we should believe. He's like, well, all right, if God wants to speak through a witch doctor, here we go. Shares the gospel, and villages of people have been coming to Christ. Now, I've heard about it, I want to go see it. And so we oftentimes, we want to see stuff. That's not how we're made. That's why that phrase is so familiar. I think almost all of you raised your hand when I said, have you said or heard, you've got to see this. We want to see stuff. Now, here's the other thing. There's a void in our lives. Only God can fill it. St. Augustine, he said it like this. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. The book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible by King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, King Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11 says that God has put eternity in all of our hearts. And so we've got these dual things happening in our lives. We want God. We long for God. Some of us know that. We realize that. We've pursued God. Some of us don't know that. We just feel like something's missing in life. But at the same time, we want to see. And do you know what the Bible says about seeing God? Exodus chapter 33, God speaks to Moses. He says, no one can see me and live. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 in the New Testament, it says that God dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him. And in the passage I told you about before I started this message, in John chapter 1, we're going to be there in just a moment. John chapter 1 verse 18, if you've got your Bible open there, it says no one has seen God. So isn't that a problem? We long for God. We're visual people. We want to see it, but we can't see God. What if I told you there's a solution to that problem? We're going to see it in our passage of Scripture today. You've got to see this. John chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, where we're going to be. We're starting this series called Encounters, and here's my hope. My goal for us in this series is this, as a church body, everybody who's here during this stage of our church, just so you know this, everybody who's here right now, one day you're going to be able to look back and go, I was there back during the setup and teardown days. <laughs> and some of you maybe didn't have anything to do with that, so you won't want to say that. Let me tell you, there's a solution to that problem. We're still going to be here for at least a couple months. You can go out to the information table, tell them you want to be on the setup or teardown team. We'd love for you to be a part of that. Just making room for everybody, you know, just letting you know. <laughs> but no matter what, what's going to happen, we don't have an exact date yet, but end of August, beginning of September, whenever it is, we're going to move over to our campus on Strickland Road. And I've told some of my friends, it's like a relaunch of the church. And so y'all are the launch team, FYI. 
And my hope for you is this, that we're going to go through this series this summer. I'm going to preach some messages. We're going to have some guest speakers speak some messages. I'll be gone some of the time. But we're going to be looking at these encounters with God, is that you individually would have encounters with God. Because here's the reality. You can't have an encounter with God and not be changed. But then how you have an encounter with God and God changes you, I hope that it changes the way you interact with people that are going to come through our doors when we move over to this campus. Because new people are going to come. People that have never been to church before, people that have been to this church and maybe kind of given it a second shot or whatever reason they're going to be there. There's going to be different people that are going to come. And you're going to be the representation of this church, FYI. No matter if you've been here for two weeks, you're the expert when they come through the door. And so I hope that you have an encounter with the living God that transforms you, that then transforms the way you interact with other people. And so what we're going to be seeing is how Jesus interacts with people, what happens to the people who have an encounter with Jesus, how they're changed, and then how they interact and how Jesus interacts with different types of people. So John chapter 1 is where we're going to be. John's an awesome gospel. It's unique. Uh, The other gospels are called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. John's about 90% fresh material. It's not recorded anywhere else. The guy who writes it, there's a bunch of Johns in the Bible. And so the guy who writes this book, the Apostle John, also writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, writes the book of Revelation. He's Jesus' best friend. And he tells us why he's writing this book. And you can look it up on your own if you want to. He says it real directly in this book, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I've written, there's many things that could be written about Jesus. I have a whole, I'm his best friend. I was there for this stuff. I've seen it all. I could have told you about other miracles. I could have told you about other teachings. But I've told you these things that you might believe. And by believing, you might have life. And so that's why this whole book is written. And what you have in this book, you don't have parables in this book. You've got some miracles. You've got some teaching of Jesus. You've got these big statements and a lot of encounters that people have with Jesus. And so that's why we titled this series Encounters. And the first person that we're going to meet in this book is a different John, not the same John, not the Apostle John. It's a guy named John the Baptist. John the Baptist, just so you know, just to give you a little historical background, scholarly language here, he's weird. Okay? <laughs> He pre- he's not just because he wears camel hair clothes, eats locusts. The dude could be like a survivalist, now have his own YouTube channel, tell you about the locust diet. It'd probably become popular for like six months. Everybody be eating grasshoppers. They'd be selling for like $90 over at Harris Teeter or whatever. But this guy, people are coming to hear him preach. He's got no children's ministry. He's got no music. He's yelling at everybody, telling them how sinful they are. But let me tell you why he's weird. He's weird, he's unlike most, that's what we mean by weird, unlike most people, most Christians, because he knows his place in this world. He realizes life isn't all about him, that he's a pointer to Jesus. His life is transformed by Jesus Christ, and then he knows he exists to connect other people to Jesus Christ. See, when somebody points at something, you don't pay attention to the pointer, you pay attention to what's being pointed to, and that's what John the Baptist realizes about his life. If there was ever anybody who had an opportunity to build his own kingdom, it's John the Baptist, son of a priest, he grew up in a ministry home. Knows how to preach, dynamic. People are coming out from all, all kinds of people, all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of cultures, all kinds of races. They're coming out to see John the Baptist, what he has to say. And they come to him right before the passage we're going to read today, and they say, are you the Christ? If he says yes, thousands of people start following him. The time was ripe. No, nope, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? Because the Bible, they thought that, that Elijah's going to come before the Christ. And you're, the, you're, the, you're the Elijah. And he says, no, not Elijah. He goes, are you the prophet? He could have said he was the prophet. He said, no, I'm not the prophet. I'm just a voice. I'm just giving you a message. You need to know the message. That's Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, we'll start reading. I'm just going to read you verses 29 and 30, John chapter 1, as we get started. Lord willing, we'll make it through verse 42, so we're on pace with the first service today. John chapter 1, verse 29 says, The next day, so after he gets questioned by those folks, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, here's his sermon, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. What? Why are you speaking in riddles? Here's what he's saying. Jesus is eternal. One of the other things you see in the Gospel of John, there's no genealogy that starts the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word is with God, that He is the Creator. He's face-to-face with God. He was part of creation. He is God. But here's what blows me away. If you read John chapter 1, we don't have time to go through the whole chapter today. John chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of John chapter 1. There's a, there's a word, a couple words that get repeated over and over again. See, saw, behold, look, reveal. You go through and you start reading it on your own, you'll see this. Let me tell you why that's important. Because when something's repeated in the Bible, it's being emphasized. So know that when you're doing your own Bible study. You start seeing something, come and see. It says a couple times in John chapter 1, come and see, come and see. Why does it say come and see? It's like John the Baptist and John the Apostle John are going, you've got to see this. And so for your own notes, I jotted down some verses you can go look at on your own or you can glance at them right now even. John chapter 1 verse 14 Look there, John chapter 1, verse 18. I already quoted some of that to you. Do you know the rest of it? It says, no one has seen God, but behold, here's the one who makes his glory known. Talking about Jesus Christ. Then verse 18, that's verse 18, verse 29. Behold, verse 31, we just read. Revealed, verse 34. Look and behold, verse 36. Verse 39, come and see. Verse 42, look. Verse 46, again, come and see. Verse 47, behold. Here's what's being said. Do you want to see God? Look at Jesus. So there's this dynamic in the Bible. No one can see God and live. No one has seen God. He dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him. But then you go to the Beatitudes and it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'm confused. John chapter 1. No one has seen God. But here's the one through whom his glory is revealed. Jesus. And so there's two things happening here at the same time. You can't see God. God's spirit. So he's not visible. You don't get to see him. He also is got glory. That's what First Timothy's talking about. His glory is so overwhelming that if you saw it, you'd be annihilated. He's holy. You're not holy. He's infinite. You're finite. You couldn't handle his glory if he revealed all of it. So there's like this dilemma. Like how does God reveal his glory to you, but you can't see him? You and I come up with a bunch of tricks he could probably do, right? Create a whole bunch of planets right in front of our face. And then I'd be like, oh, it's glorious. He came up with a better solution to the problem than that. He put on flesh. It's called the incarnation. And so God reveals himself. If you want to see his glory, you need to see Jesus Christ. And how does he show us Jesus? Through his word. And so as we come to understanding, you ever, ever heard somebody say, now I see? You come to an understanding of who Jesus Christ is, you see Jesus, then you see, you want to see God? You must see Jesus. So our first point today is this. You must see Jesus. You ha- you've got to see Jesus for who he truly is. You want to see God? You have to see Jesus for who he truly is. And the reason why I say that is this, because there's a lot of misperceptions about Jesus out there. Let me clarify a couple things. Jesus is not your homeboy, regardless of what t-shirt you own. He's your friend, but he is the Lord God, creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Master, Lord, that's what Lord means, not your homeboy. He's not your personal assistant. He's not just waiting for you to give him some things to do in your life, to like invite him in. Hey, here's some, hey, could you fix these problems for me? Jesus, hey, why don't you take care of this? Could you answer that email? He's not your personal assistant that's there to help you. He's not your idol. Some of you go, of course not. Of course Jesus is not an idol. Well, let me tell you, probably the majority of people that are worshiping Jesus, maybe at this church, hopefully not, but certainly in America, are not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. They use the name Jesus, 
But then they take stuff from the Bible they like about Jesus, like we like His grace, we like His mercy, we like His love, we like His forgiveness, we like His power. There's like a lot of stuff that we like, but we don't like His exclusivity very much. He's the only way. He says you can't worship anybody but Him. Well, just kind of bury our heads in the sand and don't talk a whole lot about that. He calls for commitment from everybody, an all-out commitment. If anyone wants to come after me, must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. That's everybody. You've got to be all in. You want to save your life? You've got to lose your life. No, I, just, I want you to enhance my life, Jesus. Then you're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. That's called an idol. It's a God you've created. That's what an idol is. And just because you use the name Jesus doesn't make it Jesus of the Bible. And so what John's saying here, the Apostle John, and what John the Baptist are saying here is this. You've got to stand for, behold the Lamb of God. See the Lamb. This is who He is. In fact, if you want an intense training in who Jesus is, read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We didn't read there are more descriptions of Jesus in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18 than anywhere else in the Bible in that amount of passage. Let me read you some of the titles, just the descriptors that are of Jesus in that section. He's called the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. It's talking about Jesus. He's the one who is in the beginning, face to face with God the Father, the one who is himself God, the creator of all things, light and life to every human being, the rejected one and the received one in verses 1 through 18, the Word who became fully human, we accept that as Christians. That's scandalous and wild. The one and only Son of the Father, the one full of grace and truth, the one who made God known to us. There's verse 18. Later in the chapter, he's called Rabbi, Lamb of God, Messiah, King of Israel, Son of Man. Let me tell you something that Jesus never does in the Bible. He never says to his disciples, hey, the people like my teaching. Hey, Peter, you know these people. They picking up what I'm putting down? Like he's, he never asks questions like that. You know what he says to them? Who do they say that I am? Do you know what you find in the Gospel of John? Seven I am statements. I am the vine. I am the resurrection and life. I am the gate. I am the door. I am the bread. I am living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's showing you who he truly is. And so we have an encounter with the living God. We see God when we come to the Gospel of John. We see he's revealing himself to us. You've got to see this. And that was John the Baptist's message. Behold... Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So what does that mean? You can read right here in the Bible. It says Lamb of God. What, do you, what, what does that mean? What do you even hear when that gets said to your ears? It's language that gets used by Christians periodically. Sometimes it's in songs that we sing. Maybe you see a t-shirt that has it or somebody's got some bumper sticker that's confusing to the rest of the world. It says Lamb of God on it. <laughs> what, what is that talking about? What do, you, what do you mean by that? Now, you might be surprised to find out it's not in the Bible very often. In fact, in the New Testament, there's only one author that, that mentions it, Lamb of God. It's John, here and in the book of Revelation. Well, it's a lot of times in the book of Revelation. So what would these listeners hear when John the Baptist is preaching a sermon and he points to Jesus and says, Behold, look, you've got to see this, the Lamb of God. Well, he's answering a question that's been in their, in their minds for thousands of years. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 22, there's a story about a guy named Abraham. I don't know if you've heard of Abraham, if you've read the Old Testament. Abraham is the father of our faith. Abraham is called to follow God by God, and he's given a promise. It's a threefold promise. He says, I'll give you a land, seed, blessing. It's called the Abrahamic covenant in the Old Testament, a promise with Abraham that God has. If you come follow me, I'm going to give you land. That's the promised land. I'm going to give you a seed. You're going to have more descendants than you could possibly count. And a blessing. Everybody, I'm going to bless you, and everybody that blesses you is going to be blessed. Everybody that curses you is going to be cursed. And so Abraham's got this promise. He goes and follows God. But here's what happens. God doesn't give him a child right away. And doesn't give him the land right away. 
And so now he's got to live by faith. And Abraham blows it. Isn't that great? The father of our faith even blows it. Do you know how he blows it? He's trying to help God out. You ever done that before? Don't. If you haven't, don't. It causes a mess. So what Abraham does, he sleeps with another woman because his wife's not getting pregnant. So he takes this younger woman, by his wife's suggestion, by the way, it's scandalous, happens here, and he sleeps with her. Ishmael's born, the Ishmaelites. Now you got the Muslims and the Jews. The, the problems that we have in the Middle East today go back to that one sin, by the way. So don't think your sin doesn't have ripple effects. It's not just Abraham. No one will know, not hurting anybody. That's not true. And Abraham, God gives him another chance. They do have a son. His name's Isaac. By Genesis chapter 22, Isaac, scholars debate, he's somewhere between probably about 16 years old and 30 years old. So we'll just say he's in his 20s, just going kind of middle of the road with that. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells him to kill Isaac. Now, wait a minute. You told me I'd have more descendants than I could possibly count. I've got one. And you want me to kill him? How could God say, oh, God, isn't that like monstrous? God to say, you kill your son? Genesis chapter 22 says that he's testing Abraham's faith. You get the thing that you love most on this earth. Do you trust me more than what you love most on this earth? And so he takes his son, and in Genesis chapter 22, and verse 7, his son looks at him and says, they're going up on the mountain for the sacrifice. And he says, hey, you got, we got stuff, wood, and we got fire? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb. He says, where's the lamb? That was Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. They go up on the mountain. Now, I don't know if you watched this this week, but the NBA draft happened. I watched the NBA draft. They know everything about those guys wingspan, how high they can jump standing still, how high they can jump not standing still, you know, every, every food they've ever eaten, who their parents are, whatever they put on social media, height, weight, let me tell you something, I don't know that stuff about Abraham, I don't know that stuff about Isaac. Here's what I know. Isaac's young, Abraham's really old. If Isaac wants to get away from Abraham, he can. They get to the top of the mountain, there's no lamb there, so Abraham ties his son to the altar. Do you know what happens there? No one took the son's life, he laid it down. If you're a Christian, that should be familiar language. It's a picture of the gospel in Genesis chapter 22, by the way. And what happens is there's no sacrifice, and God's going to obey Abraham, so he takes, or Abraham's going to obey God, so he takes this knife, he's about to jam it through his son's chest, and God says, Abraham, Abraham! Now I know, now I know you trust me. And then there's a ram caught in the thicket. His horns are stuck in this bush. And so they sacrifice that. But where's the lamb? There's a ram. Where's the lamb? John the Baptist answers that question. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's talking about Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of the cross. And maybe many, many probably that heard this, they celebrate the Passover every year, the Jewish people do. John the Baptist is preaching this. There's Pharisees out there. There's Jewish people out there. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. They probably think of the Passover. That's in the book of Exodus. That comes after Genesis. Genesis, then Exodus. And what happens in Exodus is that God's people have been in oppression for 400 years. The current leader is named Pharaoh. God sends Moses to Pharaoh to say, Let my people go. And he hymns and haws, and sometimes it seems like he's going to do it, but he never does it. And so God does what he oftentimes does in our lives. He sends warnings. Frogs. He probably hasn't sent frogs into your life, but he probably sends stuff into your life. Darkness, gnats, all kinds of stuff. Warning, 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 warning. He doesn't listen. And God says, all right, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to kill all the first, firstborn sons. How can God do that? It's a picture of the gospel. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. So I'm going to kill all the firstborn. Unless there's one way your son doesn't get killed. If you take a lamb without spot or blemish, because it has to represent that it's sinless. Because you're sinful. You can't be the sacrifice. And so you have to take this lamb that's without spot or blemish. 
And the, the blood has to be shed. And so you take the blood and you put it on the, the doorpost of your house and then the Lord will pass over, that's why it's called the Passover, will pass over your house and will not kill your firstborn son because you've given an outward expression of an inward reality that you trust God and you know that blood has to be shed for your sins. And then John the Baptist is going, Behold, there's the lamb. No one takes his life. He lays it down. His blood's going to be shed for your sins. That's what the sermon is being said. You've got to see this. This is the Lamb of God. Or maybe, maybe those Jewish listeners thought of Isaiah chapter 53, which is a prophecy 700 years before Jesus ever walked the earth, was one of the prophets saying, here's what the Messiah is going to be like. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7, he says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And here's John the Baptist going, look, you got to see this. It's the Lamb of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the one who takes away your sin. But not just the Jewish people's sin. Did you read the verse? The sins of the whole world. Do you know what that means? That means every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, that means Jesus died for all, every person that's here. It doesn't mean that you've received that sacrifice in your life, but every person here. Doesn't matter if you're white, doesn't matter if you're black, doesn't matter if you're Indian, doesn't matter if you're Hispanic, doesn't matter. Jesus died for the whole world. Here's what that means for us. There's no room for racism in the church. If you've got, I told the first service, I was reading a passage from Revelation, I'll read to you in a minute. If you've got racism in your heart, you're going to hate heaven. <laughs> Let me read to you what happens in Revelation chapter 7. It says, John, the same guy writing, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, more people than it could be counted. Sorry, ushers. <laughs> Maybe they just counted the empty seats. Well, they weren't. Oh, okay, that didn't work either. From every nation, from all tribes, all peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's the Lamb. Clothes in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Lamb of God. What does that mean for you? That means that Jesus solved the greatest problem in your life. Now, people come to church a lot of times, just so you know, during transitions in their life. So somebody, maybe you grew up in the church, that's one thing. But other people, they come to church like, we had kids, that's a transition in your life. So we should get our kids in church. I'm not really interested, but I want my kids to be there. <laughs> you want your kids to believe so? At any rate... Or people get married, and they decide they're going to go to church. People move to a new town, they need to meet people, so they go to church. And there's different things that happen in their lives. And a lot of people come to church thinking they've got a problem, and they want God to solve that problem. Maybe it's their doubts, maybe it's their skepticism, maybe it's their marriage is falling apart, and you think your marriage is your biggest problem, or you think you've got these bills coming, you think your boss is your biggest problem in your life, you think, some, you know, my spouse is my biggest problem, if you, God would just fix them, and then life would be great because I'm good, but then my spouse, you know, you've got to figure that out. We've got all these thoughts of, like, what our problems are. Here's your greatest problem. It's your sin. And Jesus solved your sin problem by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for all who bow their knee and confess Him as Savior. So, why is it that we get so upset about the way that He does it? Let me give you an analogy. Imagine this. Imagine that you... Uh, found out that you had a really bad disease. Maybe you've had some symptoms over the last couple days. You haven't been able to sleep. Um, your feet swelled up. You got some rashes or whatever. Don't tell anybody because we're sitting pretty close to each other today. Just imagine that was the case. And you go to the doctor. And the doctor tells you, yeah, you have actually a terminal disease. 
but there's one doctor who has a cure. What would you do? The answer's obvious, right? Like, the answer's obvious to everybody. Ah, maybe you just pretend like it's not a big deal and it all works out in the end. You'll be good, right? Bury your head in the sand. That's what some people do. Would you get really upset? What do you mean there's only one doctor? Why not there only be one doctor who has the cure? No, you'd go find that doctor. And what John the Baptist is saying is, there he is, behold, the cure to your disease, he's right there. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sins of the world. But if you've already placed your faith in Jesus, it gets even better. Because look at what he says next. Verse 31, I stopped reading verse 30, so verse 31 says this, I myself did not know him. What are you talking about? You're his cousin. How do you not know him? Living on the desert my whole life. Leave me alone. No. <laughs> what, he, what he probably means here is he knew who Jesus was. He didn't know he was the Messiah. So I did not know him. And that becomes clear by what he says next. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed. There's one of those seeing words to Israel. Verse 32, and John bore witness. This is John the Baptist. I saw the Spirit, saw, there's one of those words again, saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. And it remained on him. Now, that's unique because in the Old Testament, what you see is that the Holy Spirit would come upon people and anoint them for a task, anointed to be king, anointed to be priest, anointed to be anointed to do something. But here the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus and stays, and God gives a visual representation of it like a dove comes on him and stays on him. So look what he says next. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, God the Father, to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He also baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, I have seen. There's that word. You've got to see this. And have borne witness. Now I'm telling you about what I had an encounter. Now I'm telling you. I'm going to connect you to Jesus for life change. That is the Son of God. Talking about Jesus. And so here's Jesus. Not only does he deal with your sin problem, but he also baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Let me tell you, if you want an example of it, read Acts chapter 2. We don't have time to go there today. Here's what it means. It means you receive power. He tells his disciples, you wait right here. You're going to be my witnesses. You wait right here until you receive the Holy Spirit. When you receive power, power for what? Power to have victory over your sin. Power to have it be above your circumstances. Power for you to actually obey things. The scripture is going to command you to obey stuff. You have no shot at doing, just so you know. And so some people, you know, you get a false view of Christianity, false view of Jesus. Some people treat Jesus like he's a moral example. They call that Christianity. That's not Christianity, by the way. They call that Christianity. That's called moralism. And so Jesus says to do things. Jesus says to be bold. Jesus says to be courageous. You're supposed to be fearless. Just, you know, whatever the different things are. Be generous. You can't do that stuff on your own. Love your neighbor as yourself. Nobody loves anyone else like they love themselves. You need God to do that. And what's being said when you get baptized with the Holy Spirit is that God's giving his power to his people. God gives his power. You're going to forgive unlimited forgiveness for real? Like who does that? Nobody does that in their own power. It's because you have the Holy Spirit in you. It says here, baptized with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be baptized? Some of you have been baptized at this church. Some of you have seen us baptized. If you, if you need to be baptized, we're going to probably do baptisms when we move over to the Strickland Road campus. So you sign up now. You want to learn more about it. We'll talk to you more about it. And just mark it on your connection card, even if you're not a guest. I'd love to baptize you. Those of you who've seen it, you know that the way we baptize is we dunk people underwater. That's because the word baptism means to be immersed or dipped. And what happens is you oftentimes hear us say it's a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection. So we'll say sometimes, buried with Christ in baptism, dunk people all the way under the water, raised to walk in a new way of life, picture of his resurrection. What happens when those people get baptized is they go all the way under the water. Let me tell you something about being immersed. The water touches every part of their body. Okay? 
I remember one time baptizing a kid when I was a youth pastor, and he stuck his foot up and was like, damn, jam that foot back down there. Get that in there. Boom, stop. If any of you got, you know, panic and you grab the sides, we're going to like shove those arms. You're getting all the way baptized. <laughs> telling the first service, I wasn't planning on sharing this, but I was telling the first service, might as well share it with you too, it's going to end up online. Here's what, uh, the first service I said, we used to have a guy at our church, he's, he's moved away since, but uh, he was into Financial Peace University and, and some of those things, and, and he would tell me afterwards, he'd say, you need to tell some of these people when they get baptized to hold their wallet outside the water because they haven't surrendered their finances to Jesus yet. Like, Probably not going to say that, but let the Lord work that out. And he started telling me analogies, you know, soldiers, they'd want to get baptized with their sword out of the water. And what you're saying is you're saying, like, I'm not giving this part to Jesus. That's not what baptism is. You get immersed. You go all the way. You're saying, I surrender. You're public declaration of your faith. That's what baptism is. You're going, I'm, I'm identifying with death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means to be immersed, touches every part of your body. When people get wet, their whole body is getting wet. What does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? To be immersed in the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit touches every part of your life. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you can quench or you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You quench the Holy Spirit. He's there. God's present. He gives you his power. He also lets you, you want to be disobedient? You want, he, lets you, he lets you be disobedient. But you want to surrender your life to it? You want to repent of your sins? Say, here, I surrender to you. I, need, I can't obey this command. I can't forgive this person. I can't love without limits. I can't be in the relationships and live out the one another's like the scriptures. All the stuff the Bible says, I can't. Then you need the Holy Spirit. He gives you his power. Not just Your sins aren't just dealt with at the cross. He gives you the ability during this life to live victoriously over those sins. That's who Jesus is. You've got to know who he truly is. But then what does it mean to us? And so we read the next part of this passage. It goes to our second point. You have to see how Jesus can change you. You have to see who Jesus truly is, but you also have to see how Jesus can change you. And so what we see next is another encounter. John the Baptist continues to point people to Jesus. And so you see he preaches another sermon the next day. And it's like having two services, the same sermon, two times. Listen to what he says. It says, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. They don't get named here. Later we're going to find out it's John who almost never, he doesn't name himself. He's just called the one who Jesus loved. It's really humble of him, isn't it? <clears throat> it's Jesus' buddy. He doesn't name himself in the gospel, but the, the other guy's named Andrew. So the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, those are the two guys, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, we've heard this message before, behold, the Lamb of God. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. You might underline that word followed there. It's got a double meaning in this passage of Scripture. They literally followed Jesus. They literally came and walked behind Jesus. They were following him. But we know from reading the New Testament, that's a word that's used for discipleship commitment. You're, some of you might call yourself, you don't like the term Christian because it's been evangelical. Those terms have been used in the media and with politics and all kinds of stuff. They get all this kind of meaning. So some of you might say, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's the way we describe ourselves. It means our commitment to Christ. So they followed Jesus. Now, here's what you see throughout the Bible too, is that when Jesus, somebody, he doesn't just say, hey, come and see if you like my teaching and if we agree and we can debate afterward. He's not a philosopher. He's the Messiah, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. Say, come follow me. You want to be my disciple? You come follow me. Foxes have dens and, and birds have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Are you sure? You count the cost. Are you going to come follow me? You let the dead bury their dead. You come follow me. You, you, take care of that. you don't need to worry about all these earthly stuff. You don't know what it means. You don't know where you're going to end up. But you, do you trust me? That's what he's saying. You come follow me. If anyone wants to come after me, then the English versions will say, do you know what it says? Follow me. It doesn't want to be redundant. If anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That's anybody. Peter, 
You come follow me, drop your net. Drop anything that's coming between me and you, come follow me. You're a ruler who says no, by the way. Everyone he says this to doesn't say yes. So go sell all your possessions, get rid of your idols, come follow me. He wants his idols more than he wants Jesus. I wonder if he went off and created an idol of Jesus. I don't know. We never hear from him again. But here's what you need to know when you see this. When you get to the point where you realize you might not know where Jesus is going to take you, you might not know how this thing ends up, but you want to follow Jesus, you're ready to be changed. Look what it says next. They're following Jesus. And Jesus turns to them. And I love the way that Jesus speaks to them because I'm originally from the north, so a Yankee, he's direct, okay? He's real direct here. The way they answer, I think these disciples might be from the south. I haven't done the geography yet. They're kind of gentle and kind in the way that they respond. But look what Jesus says. He cuts right through the chase. Jesus turned. He saw them following. And he said to them, what are you seeking? Some of your translations say, what do you want? Why are you coming after me? Can you imagine for a moment? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word is with God. He is God. He is the creator of the universe. He is omnipotent, all-powerful. He is omniscient. He's all-ever-present. He is all-knowing. The all-powerful, all-knowing God looks you in the face and says, what are you seeking? He knows the answer already. Do you? Do you know the answer of your own heart? What are you going after in this life? What do you, imagine if we went to Harris Teeter after church. And we just started asking random people that came out, what are you looking for? Looking for my car, get out of my way. But beyond that, what do you want in life? Go to the college campus, go to Capitol Cabriolet, go to the movie theater. People that come out, what are you looking for? What kind of answers do you think you get? Fame, pleasure, money, Mr. and Mrs. Wright. What would you say? How'd you answer? Do you know what these guys say? I'm going to summarize it for you, then we'll read it together. They say, we want you, Jesus. You want to be changed by Jesus? You get to that spot. We want, if what John the Baptist says is true about you, you're the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, and you baptize with the Holy Spirit. See, if they wanted good preaching, they could have stayed with John the Baptist. If they wanted more money, they could have kept working on their fishing business. If they wanted better religion, they were Pharisees. They were doing religion like nobody's business. So we want, religion doesn't satisfy FYI. And we can give all kinds of illustrations, modern day illustrations about how fame doesn't satisfy, Anthony Bourdain, we give all kinds of, you know, money isn't going to satisfy, all kinds of people out there. Religion doesn't do it either. You need Jesus. And so they answer back, more in a southern tone, and just say, you, we want you. They said to him, Rabbi. Now, John's writing, and just know this as we're going through this, a lot of times he'll translate Jewish-type stuff for us because he's writing to a Greek audience. And so he says, that means rabbi, that means teacher. Rabbi means teacher. He says, where are you staying? In other words, we want, we want to come with you. We want you. And he said to them, come and you will see. Come and you experience it. You've got to see this. So they came and they saw. There it is again, those words where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. John tells us that because he's showing us this is an eyewitness account. He knew exactly when this happened. This isn't a made-up story. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. One of the two who heard John speak was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we found the Messiah, which means Christ. Here, you want to see a life that's changed? Andrew. Andrew leaves John the Baptist. He believes what John the Baptist is preaching, that he's just a pointer to Jesus. He comes, what was that day like that he spent with Jesus? It changed his life. 
And what we see from Andrew every moment after that in the Gospel of John is every time you see Andrew, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. So you see it here with Peter. And you know how you get, when you hear Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, he's always living in the shadow of Andrew. If this guy's got a shot right now to have his own thing. Him and Jesus. I, w- I came to the Messiah first. No, I'm not going to go tell Peter about this. I'm always in Peter's shadow. I don't want Peter around for all this stuff. No, he loves, he loves Peter so much, he's got to tell him about Jesus. What you see, John chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. Jesus says, you guys feed them. He gives the problem to his disciples. You take care of this. You all know I can feed them. You go feed them. And so then Philip, he's sitting there, and i got to figure out how much this costs. Like he's calculating everything. That's how I think, you know, math people talk. If you're a math person, love you. He's got his abacus out, Texas instrument, whatever. He's doing his thing. Andrew's out in the crowd. He grabs this little boy, he's got a lunch, and gets him to Jesus. There's these Greeks in John chapter 12. They've got to get to Jesus. Andrew brings them to Jesus. Here's, here's the reality. You want to think about what you need to do? When you meet new people that come to our church, get them to Jesus as fast as possible. But before that happens, you've got to get to Jesus. Come and see. Come and see. He's transformed. And then Andrew's a great model for those of you who might be about like, just I'd say I'm an ordinary person. I'm just kind of behind the scenes. Wouldn't it be great if your legacy was you just kept bringing people to Jesus? Come and see. He says to his brother, come and see. And then look at how Jesus has a plan for Peter. He brought him to Jesus, talking about Peter, Andrew bringing Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him, talking about Peter, and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Cephas is Aramaic, Peter is Greek. Um, they both mean rock. Neither one of them is a formal name. It'd be a nickname. So that's kind of cool to think about. Jesus gave nicknames. It's like he's calling him Rocky here. <laughs> no, no, no. Anyway. But, but go back and look at the wording of this verse. You are currently Simon, the son of John, you shall be, future, you shall be called Peter. So Jesus sees him for who he is. He's got a vision for who he will be. Because here's the reality. If you read the Gospels, you'll see Peter. He ain't no rock. He's unstable in all of his ways, a double-minded man. He's a guy who will say big words and not follow through. First one in, first one out. I'm there. Nope, didn't know it was going to be hard. <laughs> I'm all in. I'm with you, Jesus. Not today. You want to describe Peter? You get a picture if you haven't read the Gospels. He's got a, a mouth shaped like a foot. His foot's always in it. Always saying stupid stuff. Always getting himself in trouble. He's brash. He's impulsive. He's, he's not dependable. That, but then Jesus, you are Simon. You will be Peter. What do you say if he looked at you? You are, you will be. Does you think Jesus got a vision for your life? John MacArthur says in his book, if you want to read more about this naming of Peter, in his book called Twelve Ordinary Men, there's a chapter on Peter. He talks about Peter, and he talks about him naming him. And he says when, what you find when you read through the Gospels, not every time, sometimes when he's called Simon, it's just about a secular situation, like this is Simon's house, or this is Simon's mother-in-law. But usually when Jesus is rebuking Peter, he calls him Simon. And so in Luke chapter 22, when he's telling him about his denial, and he's about to say, hey, you're going to turn away, and when you turn back, strengthen your brothers, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. And after he denies Jesus, in John chapter 21, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, John chapter 21, he, three times Peter denied Jesus, so three times he has to be restored. Three times Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, do you love me? You do. Simon, do you love me? It's sad that he has to keep asking him. I do. 
Simon. MacArthur says in his book, he says, I had to get to the point where when Peter heard him say Simon, he had to know a rebuke was coming. So I think to myself, think about like when I get in trouble with my parents, they use my middle name. Like, Simon, oh, what did I do now? Like, what happened? I'm not blue. I don't even know how I blew it anymore. I'm just blowing it all the time. But Jesus here says, it's like he put his hand on his shoulder and said, you are Simon. You will be Peter. He's got a big plan for Peter's life. Peter's going to preach a sermon that starts this movement known as the church that's touched each one of our lives. It's still going on today. You will be used greatly by me. Now, here's the reality. God's got a plan for you. You are somebody today, and I promise you, it's not a fulfilled vision of who Jesus wants you to be. You're still in process. He began a good work in you. He'll be faithful to complete that work. But what do you say? You are Simon. Maybe you're like a Peter. You're brash. You're impulsive. You're unpredictable. But he wants to make you like a rock. Or, or maybe you are like Thomas. You're a doubter, but he wants you to, to give you great faith. Or maybe you are like Nathaniel. You read Nathaniel. Nathaniel is like this, this brilliant, scholarly. He's got great questions for Jesus. Like, wait a minute. This is impossible. You don't fit, you don't fit into my paradigm, Jesus. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus is going to blow all your paradigms, Nathaniel. And all of us. In the process, he's going to make you who he wants you to be. He's got great grace for you. You're not who you're supposed to be, but God's not done with you yet. So can you see what Jesus sees when he looks at you? You are Simon, but you will be. Can you see that? And here's a little twist on the question. Can you see it in other people? Because we're going to go over to this campus on Strickland Road. Let me tell you, there's going to be all kinds of people that are going to come. There's going to be some people that are like Peter that show up. And they're brash. They're hard to be around. You don't want them in your small group, dominating the conversation the whole time. Can you see that Jesus has a plan for them too? Maybe he wants to use them in a big way that you could never fathom. You make space for them in your life? What about, there's going to be, we live in North Raleigh, FYI. I promise you there will be people that are very pretentious that come to our church. They're all about what they've accomplished, all about what they own, all about their outward appearances. Can, can you imagine for a minute what Jesus sees when he looks at them? That maybe he has a longing for them to be transparent, to have some real relationships with people, to be able to be vulnerable about their greatest weaknesses because it's in our weaknesses that Jesus has made known. Do you think that might be Jesus' plan for some of us? There's going to be some people that are going to be like the, the woman at the well, married five times. The guy she's shacking up with now is not her husband. What did Jesus see? I saw a woman who needed living water. There's going to be some people that are messy. Can you see what Jesus sees? Here's what you got to do. You've got to come and see Jesus first, and he'll change you. And the way he changes you will dictate the way that you interact with other people. Will you come and see? There's more to see in the Gospel of John. We're going to keep going. But what do you do with today's message? Here's a, there's a lot of applications. Here's one of them. Maybe you've never encountered the living Christ, and you need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior today. I'm going to tell you how to do that in just a moment when we go to pray. Some of you here, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Is the Spirit touching every area of your life? And if not, how are you quenching Him? How, how are you trying to control your life? How is it? Maybe there's sin in your life you need to repent of. There's a lot of things to apply if you're a believer in Jesus. We can't even go through all of them, but are you filled with the Spirit? If so, then you know what you need to be doing? You need to be saying to other people, come and see. When you invite somebody to church, what are you inviting them to? Have you thought about that? You're not just inviting them to hear preaching. You're not inviting them for music. You're not inviting them for children's ministry. You want them to see Jesus Christ. Amen. If we lift him up, God will draw people to himself. So we exalt Jesus. We're all pointers. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's got a plan for your life, and it's not who you are today. He's going to transform you. He'll take you as who you are today. You are, Simon. You will be Peter.
Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak directly into our lives, that your word is living and active, sharper than two-edged sword. God, I pray that you pierce hearts of anybody who's not a believer today, and you draw them into your kingdom. Now, if that's you, if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, I told you I'd tell you how to do that. Here's what you need to do. You need to acknowledge your sin before God. We're all sinners. Everybody's sin falling short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us you've fallen short of God's perfect standard, not your own standard. And so if you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, you acknowledge your sin. If you believe that Jesus died for your sins, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is God's one and only Son, that he was a sacrifice for your sins when he died on the cross and shed his blood, he was paying your penalty. He's curing your sin problem. And that he rose from the dead and is offering you life. If he's dead, he can't offer you life. But he rose from the dead, he's offering you life. Do you want to receive that life today, that you'd believe on him and receive life? Then pray. Just pray this prayer with me. God, I know that I'm a sinner. I acknowledge my sin before you. And right now in this moment, I want to ask your son Jesus Christ to be my savior. The Bible says that if you, if you pray that prayer, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. It's a promise. Many of you here have done that before. God still wants to speak to your heart. He's not done with you. You're still here. You're still breathing. He's still got a plan for you here. Maybe some of you are saying, come and see. Come and see me. Come and see me for who I am. Not for who you want to make me into. Repent of the idolatry. Repent of making me into somebody that I'm not. And come and encounter me and be transformed by me. I've got a plan for you. You are, but you will be. He wants to change you today. I hope that you're not the same when you walk out these doors as you were when you walked in. Because you've encountered God. Some of you, you need to go and tell. You need to be like an Andrew and bring people to Jesus. Just go to him and say, come and see, come and see Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray.